Uh, good morning, church. My name is Eric Sheldon. Uh, I am the young adults minister here at South Lansing Christian Church, and I'm super excited to be up here uh, to kick off our Adventist series. Now, during the month of December here at South, we like to do a series about Advent. And the word Advent can be translated to just arrival, referring into the refi- arrival of the Messiah. The Advent season is a practice of not only anticipating the coming of the Messiah, uh, but also remembering him and what he did. As a church, each week in December, we choose to focus on one of the many things that was given to us because of the arrival of our Messiah. Each week, we light a candle. Uh, Each one signifies a different theme of Advent, hope, love, peace, and joy. Uh, So today, we are going to light the candle of hope. There we go. All right. No fires. We're all good. Um, Now, each week uh, after we do this, uh, the first week is typically usually about hope. And so that's what we're going to be talking about here today. Now, I get to preach on a Sunday morning a couple times of the year, and I have noticed that there is a pattern or a trend that I kind of go through with my sermons. I typically start by telling you about some nerdy, obscure thing from my childhood, and then I'll talk about how, as I've grown up, those things and stories have had a little bit of a deeper meaning for me and how that impacts how I grow. Well, this morning isn't going to be any different because I figure I'm not going to try and fix something that isn't broken. (laughs) So as a preteen, I was obsessed with Legos. I'm still obsessed with Legos. They're just too expensive for me now. Uh, Now, Legos aren't exactly nerdy. Everyone loves Legos. And I'm pretty sure at one point or another, everyone has been tempted to go into debt to buy one of those big, like, 10,000 to 50,000 Lego sets at least one point in their life. No one. All right, cool. Well, I guess I'm the weirdo here now. I guess that explains my college debt as well. Anyways, I digress. Uh, I loved most things Lego as a teenager, but there was one specific IP that I was obsessed with, and that was Bionicle. Walter claims these aren't Legos, or real Legos, if you will, Uh, but these are cool because you can actually play with them and not worry about them falling apart on you. Bionicle was everything that a budding nerd could ever want from a Lego set. They were cool, they were unique, they had video games and comics associated with them, and I found out the other day that apparently there was a trading card game that came out with them, and it's probably for the best that I didn't know those existed, to be honest. But every time I had any sort of money, it would go into buying a new set. Or every Christmas, I would have the bigger sets of them on my Christmas list, either because I was too impatient to save up for them, or they were just astronomical amounts for them, like Legos nowadays. To say that I was obsessed with Bionicle might be an understatement. I would spend hours building and disassembling the made made sets to build my own custom sets and storylines. And at one point, I even had a YouTube channel devoted to my obsession. Um, Don't bother looking for it. Walter tried for a couple hours last week, and he couldn't find it. I'm pretty sure I scrubbed most of that from the internet. But if you want to try, just don't do it this morning. Do it later while you're at lunch or something like that. But I'm pretty sure it's gone, I hope. 
but one of the things I love the most about these sets was the lore that was behind the story. And there's tons of it. Lore is all of the information kind of like in the background of the story. Now, that doesn't mean it's not essential. If anything, it makes it more crucial because it informs us about the current characters, settings, and plot lines. Lore deepens the meaning and the impact of the story we are reading. And without it, the story is more shallow and it has less urgency and meaning. On the surface, Bionicle is all about a group of heroes who were summoned to defeat a great evil that was threatening the world. But if you look into it and consider the lore, it becomes a bigger story. It becomes the story of a creator god who's trying to save his corrupted creation from his jealous brother who is also corrupted by evil. Now, it's not a one-for-one comparison with the Bible, but it's pretty similar, right? I thought that was really cool, and it wasn't until much later that I made that connection. It's probably one of the reasons why I love Bionicle. And I could go on and on to tell you about every plot point, every decisive battle, and how the heroes grow and change over their journey. But that's not what today's sermon is about. It isn't that kind of book club. Today is supposed to be a sermon about the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that he brings to us. Now, I typically don't like Christmas music, and I get a lot of aggressive comments about that. Uh, You know, some of them for good reason, Um, but I don't really like it because it typically doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It ignores all the lore that has been built up around the Messiah over the decades. You know, when Mariah Carey sings, All I Want for Christmas is You, she isn't talking about Jesus. But Mariah isn't the only person who gets Christmas wrong. Christians also get Christmas wrong. We often celebrate Christmas because it's the birth of Jesus, the hope in our salvation. But we often don't understand why it's so important and the impact that it had on the Jewish community that Jesus arrived in. We often get Christmas wrong. And that leads us to a hope and a salvation that is shallow and individualistic. We don't know the lore behind Christmas, and that changes everything about our hope and how we think about salvation. So let's take a look at what most people believe about salvation. When discussing being saved, we typically think of this little story that's going to appear on the screen. You know, God created everything perfect, and humanity ruined it. Sin has separated me from an eternity with God. And I am a sinful person who's in need of saving or I'm going to the bad place. But Jesus came to die for my sins. And if I accept him as my Lord and Savior, then we can spend eternity in heaven with God. That sounds about right. Most people in this room would agree with that story. This is the backbone for a lot of our testimony. And this is what people tell others when they're trying to get them to come to church or to repent You know, it's what we agree to when we get baptized into Christ. And that's great, but it's all very much about me. You know, even the way we talk about Jesus is very individualized oftentimes. God loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus is my personal Savior. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but it's incomplete. In Western culture, there has been predominantly Christian faith for a while now, and it's all about the individual, especially true in the American church. 
Our version of hope is often far too shallow, far too small. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not very compelling to those who like their life outside of Jesus. God's plan of reconciliation isn't about you. It's about the whole of creation. It's about returning things to how they were before we messed it up. Yes, you are a part of that creation, and you are one of the amazing details that God spent time and energy creating. But Jesus didn't die just for you. He died for everyone that God loves, and I think we forget that sometimes. God's version of hope is bigger than just me. True hope is not only about us, but all of creation. And true hope is not only about the future, but it's here in the present as well. And everyone starts with this very basic understanding of the redemption story. But we need to learn to grow beyond it. So that begs the question, when we start considering everything we need to consider, what does a more biblically accurate hope look like? Where do we find this true hope? So to answer that question, we must first set aside our story of salvation. And then like with all things, we look to Jesus for what to do next. When Jesus taught people, he always started with the Jewish lore, or as normal people call it, the Old Testament. Jesus always connected what he teaches with the Old Testament and then takes it a step further. So we're going to do that this morning. Jesus was sent to the Jews long before Jesus arrived on the scene because they knew someone was coming. They waited for a savior that was called the Messiah or the Son of Man who would come and make all things right again. And they didn't know it would be Jesus, but they knew someone was coming. The Jews viewed the world in two stages. They viewed it in this age and the age to come. They knew that we lived in a broken world full of evil and sin. You know, there was death and slavery and violence. The whole of creation was cursed. But then the Messiah would come and fix everything. In fact, many Jews believed that the Messiah would come in and take over the government and take down all these corrupt rulers and laws and all these things that created injustice. And that his kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, would be one of justice and freedom and grace. And that the whole world would be blessed through this kingdom. But then Jesus came and he died and that changed everything. But that's where Jesus started. He took what the Jews know, and he took it a step further. And it's not like the Jews were completely wrong. They just didn't have the full picture, which is what led to a lot of problems. You know, and these problems, these misunderstandings, are what led to the rise of people like Saul. Saul was so invested in his worldview that he hunted followers of Jesus and jailed them or even killed them because he essentially thought they were a dangerous cult that needed to be stopped. Essentially, he thought we were terrorists, and he was preparing the way for the true Messiah. And unfortunately, there are some Christians today who are no different than Saul, on both sides of the aisle, which is honestly heartbreaking. In fact, Jesus deals with this very issue throughout his ministry as he ministers to the people around him. You know, we get moments where his disciples ask him if they can be at his right hand or his number two when the kingdom comes. Or moments when the Pharisees try to use the Jewish law to trap Jesus. 
Or how about when Peter cuts off an ear of a guy when he's trying to protect Jesus from the law? Sometimes how we choose to go about enacting change reveals where our true hope lies. And so I ask you the question, where does your hope lie? Does it lie in power and position? Does it lie in money and possessions? What about your lineage? Maybe, like 12-year-old Eric, it was in Legos. I don't know. Some Christians try to force their worldview on a broken world and people, and all that does is make things worse. Those things don't change people's hearts. They just reveal where our hope lies. And it took a radical encounter with Jesus for Saul to change. But Jesus changed Saul so much that Saul changed his name and spent the rest of his life trying to help others experience the same revelation that he did. Post-Jesus, Paul's version of hope is expanded and it's deepened. And I think that's what we need, especially around Christmas time. Paul's new view of hope looked a lot more like this next slide. You see, the current age and the age to come are still there, but because of Jesus, these two spheres overlap a little bit. When Jesus came, he started his ministry. He inaugurated the kingdom of God, the age to come. And he started this kingdom, and because of that, we can experience a world of justice, freedom, and peace here and now. The Jews got that part right, but Jesus didn't come in and take over like he wanted them to. Instead, he served others, he sacrificed his life, and his blood started this redemption process not only for humanity, but for the whole of creation as well. And Jesus promised that he would be back, but unfortunately, we are still waiting in this moment. Paul, formerly known as Saul, describes this in his letters to the Romans. In chapter 8, starting at verse 18, we get this. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is eagerly waiting for that one day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the chains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God gives us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Creation and humanity are both broken and waiting for renewal. And when Jesus returns, his kingdom will be fully completed and we will experience everything in this age to come. In the book of Revelation, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, describes what that will be like. In Revelation 21, starting at verse 1, John describes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death 
or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Also, he said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Just like Paul states in his letter to the Roman, we are currently waiting in this middle era. The now, but not yet. This awkward time when we get to start to live in the goodness of God's kingdom, but we'll experience it in its fullness later. Okay, so that was a lot. That was like three Great Lakes Christian College classes for me, so I can understand uh, if you're a little exhausted by that. So let's take a breath. Because this is very important for how we view the future and God's kingdom and our hope in it. In our world, we use holidays, whether they're Christians or not, to inspire and motivate us to be better and to give us hope until the next big thing. We live for these experiences and moments, yet when we use Christmas this way, it cheapens what God actually did for us by sending Jesus. Instead of treating Jesus' arrival like a fantastic, life-changing cure, we treat it like a Band-Aid that often only lasts as long as the excitement and the holiday cheer. But God wants more for his creation. The birth of Jesus is a reminder to us all that the true hope that God gives us is both not only for the right now and the present, but also for the future of his people and his kingdom. Now, this isn't your typical Advent message. There's no imagery of barn animals in a manger or a sky full of angels over a field. It doesn't focus directly on the story of Jesus' birth from Luke chapter 2. Instead, we are paying homage to Jesus' birth and what it actually does for us. It gives us the ability to hope. Now, Christmas for God's people creates a space for us to stop and pivot at the end of the year a chance to reflect on the Old Testament and see what the arrival of the Messiah actually changes. One of the things I love about Scripture is that it's not just full of things that we should do or what we ought to do, but it gives examples of how we accomplish these things and what they look like in real life. So three things come to mind when I think about how to start living the true hope that God wants for his creation. Number one is remember that God's kingdom is both for the now and the future. You know, Jesus started everything and he will come back to finish it. Yet we often live like hope is only for the far off future when we're done with our lives and when we're tired and old. But in Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, he says these words. In 1 Thessalonians, uh, starting at... Chapter 4, verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know that what will happen to the believers who have died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that Jesus, when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. In this moment, 
Paul is speaking directly about believers who have died, but he makes a point that I believe is stands true in all situations. Paul reminds the church that we aren't like people who have no hope. So we shouldn't live like them or think like them. Our hope is different. Because of Jesus, we see things clearly, and we know how this ends. You know what Jesus started, and that should inform how you think not only about future hope, but also the hope that we have in the present as well. Number two, focus on your heart and not other people. The Messiah's arrival means that the weight of changing the world isn't up to us, and it's not on our shoulders. We cannot speed up Jesus' return or the completion of God's kingdom. And forcing our worldviews into a political system or onto another person's lifestyle doesn't do anything for God's kingdom. We even see Jesus address this sort of mindset at the end of the Gospel of John. We get this interaction between Peter and Jesus after Jesus is resurrected. Three times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. And all three times Jesus instructs Peter to feed his sheep. And ultimately Peter is hurt by this. But directly following this situation, we get a moment where Jesus once again has to correct Peter's thinking. In the Gospel of John, chapter 21, starting at verse 19, we get this interaction. Jesus said this to let him know what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. See, Jesus tells Peter where his focus needs to be several times, in fact. And then, like a lot of us, myself included, we look around and we say, well, what about that guy over there? And ultimately, that doesn't matter to Jesus. He wants us to focus on ourselves rather than the people around us. Number three, live out true hope as the church. The church is the true hope that God wanted for his people, lived out for others to see. The church is supposed to be so different, so holy that it attracts other people. And that's what we spent the last few months here at South talking about on Sunday mornings. And whether you like it or not, you are part of that example. It's not enough to tell other people about your hope, but living it out in such a way that makes people want to live similar. The early church understood this, and the book of Acts describes that they lived out their hope like this starting in Acts 2.42 through 47. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And so I read this 
And I'm offered a challenge to get involved, to be a part of the hope that other people notice, not only for yourself, but for the others around you. True hope is often shown through how we choose to live our lives. And so ask yourself, what made you want to be a part of this community? Was it the grace that was given to you? Maybe you should show that grace to others in everything you do. Was it authentic people and conversations? Then you need to be that authentic person that has those conversations, those real conversations, even if they might cause conflict. Or maybe it was how people gave of their time and their talent and their money to grow this community. Then I think you also need to jump in, to serve, to give in the same way. One of the things I love about student ministry is that I get to see this hope that God wants for us on a smaller scale. We try to create a place where students can fully experience the hope of the now but not yet. And it breaks my heart when I see them graduate and move on to something else. Many of them move on and experience church communities of people where everything is about them. People who are all about their personal faith, their availability, what they get out of Sunday morning. Christians who put on this front of perfection and that everything is fine when most of the time it's not. Yet some experience the church as God intended. They experience people who continue to disciple and invest in them. They are drawn to godly communities that show love and grace. They see people living out this true hope that the coming of Jesus brought. I personally experience that, and it's why I do what I do. So let's continue to be the latter, to be the type of godly community that exemplifies true hope. The true hope that Jesus brought to the world should change how we experience not only our entire lives, but the Advent season as well. Hope, love, joy, peace are all from God's kingdom to experience here and now. Hope isn't just about us, but the whole of creation and true hope isn't far in the future, but it's here in this room. Paul's life changed forever, and when he did, so did his view of hope. He was a man whose hope allowed him to endure poverty, exile, jail, and eventually execution. And he spent every waking moment of his life praying and writing letter upon letter, hoping that we can experience the same thing he did. In a moment, we are going to enter into a time of communion where we get to practice these three things by living out our hope in a communal meal. Remember Jesus' sacrifice to remind ourselves of current and future hope that he purchased for us on the cross. We take it as a form of submission to his kingdom and admit that he is Lord and that he is going to accomplish what he will in his timing. And finally, we participate in the kingdom by pledging ourselves not only to his will, but to the people around us, his church. And the example of his hope in the here and now. As I was writing this lesson and as I was doing research, I came across this quote um, by a scholar named William Barclay. And I think he does a really good job at summarizing how we as the church need to live out true hope. 
the Christian is involved in the human situation. Within, he must battle with his own human nature. Without, he must live in a world of death and decay. Nonetheless, the Christian does not only live in the world, but he also lives in Christ. He does not see only the world. He looks beyond it to God. He does not only see the consequences of man's sin. He sees the power of God's mercy and love. Therefore, the keynote of a Christian's life is always hope and never despair. The Christian waits not for death, but for life. Will you pray with me? Uh, Dearly Father, Lord, we thank you so much to be able to be here, to be a part of this community that you love so much. And we thank you for the sacrifice that you made on the cross uh, and by sending your Son to not only give us hope for today and tomorrow, but also five years from now and ten years from now and however long we are on your creation, Lord. God, I pray that as we go through the Advent season, you can continue to give us hope, a hope that's not diminished by the lack of snow or Christmas decorations, but one that endures. God, we thank you so much for everything you've done for us and everything you'll continue to do for us. In your name we pray. Amen.